Cade Milafalcha, welcome to the second episode of the Now podcast. Later, I'll be talking with Dr. Neil Fox, senior lecturer in film at Falmouth University and co-producer of the highly successful film podcast, The Cinematologists. We'll be discussing how he has adapted to teaching online during the pandemic and providing us with some useful tips for other educators, as well as how higher education institutions could deliver their courses in the future. But first, I'm going to be talking about the recent Black Lives Matter protest that achieved a somewhat significant moment with the tearing down of the Edward Coulson statue in Bristol. The way in which the history of the British Empire and its key role in the slave trade are taught in schools has been thrown under the microscope. Several commentators have suggested that a complete restructuring of the curriculum for the subject of history in British schools is required. It's been argued that the current curriculum somewhat skirts past enormous racially significant aspects of the empire in order to create a sense of patriotism amongst our younger population, some of which have now grown into our senior members of society. A patriotism seized in part by the Leave campaign for Brexit who often use the empire and warlike propaganda in order to convey its message. A friend of mine who's a long-standing and respected history teacher noted when discussing the divisive approaches to the subject that, and I quote, there's never a single way that history can be interpreted. But I would guess that teachers are more likely to put the spotlight on the oppressed, not the victors at the time. That there's a fair diversity about the way schools approach history teaching. Affected by certain curricular constraints to a degree, there are cultural slash multicultural content, and the preferences of staff, not to mention age and ability of students, curriculum time that often impacts on the degree of complexity of any historical inquiry. Now, as an Irishman who moved to the UK in my early years, I often recall learning about the Irish famine in school when I lived in Cornwall. The lessons I learned focused on starvation and the ways in which Irish people died or desperately survived. Little was taught on how British landowners were the main cause behind the suffering. There was no enquiry on how Ireland achieved its independence in a time when Churchill sent an army of convicted murderers and rapists to Ireland in the form of a militia known as the Black and Tans. A militia known for its brutality to the point where they would cut out the tongues of Irish people who refused to speak in English. In fact, this knowledge came to a front a couple of years ago when I was sitting in a pub in Miami on New Year's Eve and a friend ordered two drinks, a black and tan and an Irish car bomb. Now his horror when I explained the historical relevance of said drink and how its equivalent would be like sitting in a bar in Dublin and ordering a drink called a 9-11, which is in fact a variation of a Manhattan cocktail with two kamikazes. Needless to say, my good friend drove over on New Year's Day having exclaimed that he had done some research and wanted to apologise. I personally found this funny, but all the more so because it was a solid gesture that was very much appreciated. I respect that man. And I'm not using the example of Ireland as a comparison to the slave trade, but rather as a personal example of how the subject of history in British schools fails to provide a full picture. The defacement of Churchill's statue was followed by social outcry of nationalists stating how ungrateful the youth of today are, how if it wasn't for Churchill, we'd all be speaking German right now and so on. It's funny, I'm pretty sure Germany still speaks German. Needless to say, change is required. 
I'm really excited to welcome John Whitehead uh, to today's episode. He's the former head teacher of Colston Girls School in Bristol um, and been a relatively large voice in the discussion of changing the school's name back in 2017. I worked at Colston Girls School from 2013-2019, so actually, is that right? 14 to 19, sorry. So it's five years. Um, and it's, it's a strange thing because you know in many ways it was a really positive experience because it's a great school it's a really interesting school there's a lot of superb teachers there and and what i would say is history is taught really well in that school now you know the head of history yeah. there and <laughs> the, there are when i was there there were three historians on the senior leadership team and we were intensely aware of that colston legacy um I mean, I can't claim to have understood it properly before I went there. I, was, I went there with slightly naively, I think, not realising what the name meant in the, in the city. But it doesn't take you long to, to understand it. And, and there are two bits to it in the school. One is that, you know, you've got a large BAME population in the school <clears throat> who come from the surrounding areas who are, you know, it's what makes the school special. It gives it its energy, its diversity, its creativity. So that is, that's a wonderful thing. But there was always an undercurrent with a substantial number of those students that there was something not right about being in a school with that, the name, with that name. Um, and, and I guess our first reaction to that was to look at the history curriculum and just to make sure that we gave people the opportunity to be interpretive around those issues. So we'd always taught slavery, but I think certainly before I went there, the history curriculum was quite traditional and quite probably quite didactic. And, you know, my predecessor as a head teacher would deliver... Um, a kind of positive view of Colston in the assemblies. I say positive, probably not, but but uh, you know, not as critical as it could be. Um, and um, and and it's interesting. I notice in the news there's a former head student who's in the Bristol Post this week. Who's uh, I think she's quite famous. She's been on Bake Off or something. I, I can't remember her name, but she was um, saying that she went to the school and that they weren't taught about Colston in a rounded sense. So I suppose I recognise a bit of that. Um, and I I taught year nine history the first year I went there and I completely rewrote the curriculum um, around, you know, debate and discussion and, and, and sharing sources. And and um, and it was a bit of a, an exploration for myself because I didn't know enough about it. So, you know, to design the curriculum, I had to do that. And, and it was clear that, you know, Colston knowingly had investments in the slave trade and benefited from it. And and Colston School, which is the private school, the boy, originally the boys' school, and our school was set up um, using money derived from those profits, you know. And, and, and there might be a – there is a gap. I mean, Colston died. I can't remember when he died, but there's about 140, 150 years between his death – and the opening of Colston Girls School. So, you know, on a superficial level, you could say, well, 
you know, what direct contact did, did he have with the school? But it was that money that was invested that was used to, to set up the school. And, and, and that feels uncomfortable. And the more you, the more you understand that, the more you understand why, you know, ethnic minority students, BMA, E students would, would feel uncomfortable being in a school with that name. So we, you know, we we went through, we had a diversity empowerment programme and we wanted the students to express their views and they expressed them to us as the senior leadership but also to the governors. Um, and we got to the point by the spring of 2017 where we thought that we wanted to do a consultation process around the name of the school. This is this is the the articles I, I've been researching in the Telegraph and so on. Yeah, it became kind of national news at the time. It did, yeah, and and it's it was very uncomfortable for me personally because I ended up fronting something I didn't believe in or agree with um, because my initial response was to to propose a consultation process, including students and parents. And um, and I, I think, and I understand why this was, but so the Society of Merchant Venturers, who are incredibly influential in Bristol, and, and I, I do think it's problematic because they're not accountable in the way that powerful people normally are. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an influence that comes from wealth. And I, I thought, well, there's an opportunity here to build bridges, you know, to make things uh, feel different for the students, but also in the community as a whole. Because one of the most interesting things about a school like Colston Girls School is no matter what changes you make in the school, you know, what, what commitment you've got to equality and empowerment and students feeling valued, when they walk out the front door and they walk back into that community and, you know, they're walking down Cheltenham Road or Gloucester Road and they've got people shouting racist things at them. That, do you know what I mean? That's, that unpicks all the good work you might do in the school. So we, we knew this was a really big project and it needed to go beyond the school and that we needed to engage with groups that were challenging us about the name of the school and and we thought a consultation would have been a positive way forward we we also knew there was a danger that it would get hijacked and it was you know the media would hijack it and 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 groups would hijack it so we had to think carefully about how to manage it but it got um i mean i i proposed the consultation process uh, but it got stopped almost immediately and um what came back was from the SMBs was um, a, a determination to retain the name. They felt it was reputationally really important that the school was popular, and it was popular because of the name, but also, I think, also, understandably, they, they didn't want to be seen to back down. And 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 I I use this phrase, and I don't know how many people it applies to, but I saw some evidence of it. There is a cult of... Colston in that organization and maybe it goes beyond that you know if you go to the merchants hall in Clifton which I've done many times and there's one little meeting room you go in and they've got this little shrine to Colston you know bit kind of personal um 
uh, things like I, I can't remember what's there, but you know, little personal trinkets. Um, and and I always thought that that's just a little bit strange. Um, so, I mean, they are more media savvy, and they they've got better at presenting themselves and making them seem kind of liberal and listening and concerned. And and I noticed the statement they put out this week after the statue got dumped in the harbour. I noticed that they, they said something like, you know, there's a lot we still need to learn about the slave trade. Well, you know, that's probably that's a fair statement. Um, I, I think my problem is deeper than that. It, it's the... You know, that with powerful groups, it's not the decisions they make, it's the decisions they prevent others making that causes the damage. You know, again, naively, I thought I could um, find a pathway between those two groups by doing a genuine consultation process, um, but um, I failed. And, and I ended up... And again, I regret this. I ended up uh, having to front up for the, you know, for, for the for the governors really the decision to retain the name of the school. And I, you know, I had to go. <laughs> I went on BBC Five Live and I had to explain why we weren't changing the name of the school. Yeah. But it wasn't. You know, it was really a decision enforced by the governors and the chair of governors particularly. Um, and there was this very long-winded legalese justification for retaining the name, which was about um, the whole complexity of history and historiography, and uh, you know you can't bury things, and 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 it, it's, it seemed ludicrous at the time because you know the the, the response to that is well. In 1945, do you preserve Hitler's bunker and any statues of leading Nazis that were in Berlin? Well, no, you don't, because for a good reason, you don't want to give any credibility to those ideas. How, how diverse was this you know, board of governors? That's a really good question. Um, so when I first went there, not diverse at all. Um, um, I, I went there because... I thought the school was ready for change. And the reason I thought they were ready for change is they appointed as their um, executive head teacher, somebody I'd worked with previously, who I knew was a good person and and was, um, you know, liberal and committed to, um, you know, representing, representing diversity effectively. And so I went there feeling positive in that sense. And, and one thing that that person did do was change the composition of the governing body. Um, and so, you know, it was certainly more, a lot more diverse by the time I left the school. And, and, and that, that was good. But, um, you know, governing bodies on, in schools are not powerful anymore. There's a bit of a misconception. You know, the chair of governors might be, um, but governing bodies really don't make key decisions it's shifted to the trust um so there's ventures trusts which was set up by the smbs i think that started in 2017 um and all the real decisions were made by that body now that trust board was not particularly diverse and and was dominated by the society of merchant venturers so 
power shifted up another level, really. And, and, you know, one interesting example of how it was less accountable was, if you think about most school bodies, they've, they've got parent rep- representation. Yeah. But trust boards don't. You know, trust boards are not accountable to parents in that, in that sense at all. Um, so it's a, it's a very, it's very much driven by, you know, the most powerful people in, in, in those groups who tend to be the sponsors and the sponsors are the merchant adventurers. Yeah. What was it like knowing kind of your involvement in the past and then seeing, seeing that statue getting torn down and choked in the harbor? Um, it's, it's not just about Colston and it's not just about, well, it's about so many other things. It's about how Bristol feels as a political city and that culture and the openness or lack of openness and the toxicity that runs through a lot of debates that could have been taken away a long time ago. And, and you know, I was lucky enough to work with Paul Stevenson few years ago who was the leader of the Bristol bus boycott in 1963 and I just think there was a real opportunity you know after that bus boycott to bring a different culture about a more open culture in Bristol but and I'm talking 2015 now I had a conversation with one of the SMBs in which he said oh just can't we can't we forget about all that you know can't we move on from the bus boycott and I was thinking no, you can't because, you know, and, and that's the mentality that, you know, we don't bury the Colston bit of history, but we bury the bus boycott, you know? Well, I guess when yeah. people people talk about the systemic issues, this is exactly yeah. what they're talking about, is the fact that yeah. control is removed. Um, yeah. And ultimately now we're in a situation where the people have kind of forced the council's hand yeah, uh, in the city, even this yeah. thing from Marvin Reese over the weekend, you know, yeah, was trying to to move the conversation forward. Um, yeah. Do you think, given what's happened, and knowing that places like Colston Hall already agreed to a name change, yeah, yeah, do, can you see that that trust justifying not changing the name now? No, I think, I mean. I mean, I've got to be careful what I say about this, but I think that there are enough people within Colston Girls School, for instance, as an example, who who would be open to changing the name. You know, the, these are smart liberal people um, who, who want, wouldn't want students to be in the school and feel uncomfortable about the name of the school. So I'm optimistic about that. Um, I mean, what I've noticed is things only change when they have to. You know, so for instance, there's a statue of Colston's Colston in in Colston Girls School, which was removed the day after it was removed on Monday this week. Um, you know, actually, the initiative should have been taken there, and it should have been removed some time ago. They should have been getting ahead of the game. They should have been making those ethical decisions before they were forced to. And it's an interesting debate on Twitter. I've been following the Twitter debate about whether what happened in Bristol was violent and and therefore, you know, uh, not legitimate. I don't think it was 
a violent action. I thought it was very calm and organised, you know, people jumping up and down. But it was, I think it was direct action, definitely. But I didn't see any violence. They could have been that the police that got involved, but actually I thought the police did very well. They made a really good decision. And, and I think that's them acknowledging that this is a toxic culture where things that should have happened have not happened, promises, you know, to take take things away or to 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 change the context in which things are presented in the city have not been fulfilled and i thought people had every right to act you know thank you very much to john whitehead former head teacher of colston girls school if you have any comments or follow-up questions please feel free to record a voice message via our anchor.fm page or find us on twitter and facebook at anao podcast now, moving on. Over recent weeks, I've been engaging in ongoing discussions with teachers throughout primary, secondary and higher education institutions about the difficulties of transitioning to online teaching, as well as growing concerns about how the pandemic has impacted student welfare. I turn to Dr. Neil Fox, lecturer in film at Falmouth University and innovator in blended and distant learning, who has kindly offered to share his experiences and useful tips for teachers and students alike as well as considerations toward how educational institutions should consider their staff and students moving forward into a post-lockdown society. So what was the initial changeover to online teaching like? Was it time-consuming, draining? Just tell me what it was like initially. It wasn't time-consuming because we didn't have any time to do it. (laughs) So um, we kind of, when it eventually came through that we were going to be moving online and uh, kind of moving all teaching online. Everything was stalled for three sort of three days. So we broke up on a Tuesday and then we had sort of Wednesday through Friday to get ready to teach everything online 100% from the following Monday. Did you, did you guys put in place any form of data capture for students to give feedback on the sessions? If there was anything they'd like to implement themselves or what they struggled with? No, um, we've got the, the normal mechanisms, and, and and you know, in terms of students reporting through their through their reps, um, and uh, the campfires that we run for different modules, where it's just kind of drop in and talk. But to be honest with you, the anxiety that students had was all around assessment and how the hell they were going to finish their work. That was, you know all pretty much all unfinished. If there was a practical project, you know, and some of it was just ripped out in the middle. So their anxiety was purely what's our assessment going to look like? What can we do kind of thing? You know, that the, there was no time for imagining a bright utopian future of what online education was going to be. It was like, let's, let's make it work um, and, and get these students through and try and kind of ease their anxieties, but also just their kind of heartbreak really. I mean, a lot of these third years worked the whole year on the project and then they had no film. So it was mainly about just talking through, the reality of the situation and, and, and what we would do. So a lot of the stuff we did that responded to that was all about assessment and it wasn't about delivery. And what about resources? Because obviously a lot of students, like you said, went back home to isolate with family or friends or whatever it may have been. I imagine a lot of them would have been utilizing campus resources initially to write their, their essays. Some of them might not have had computers or even access to fast enough internet to to join the seminars online etc 
yeah. where did you come about those issues? You know, I've always been skeptical of this idea that online is democratic and it equalizes the field for everyone, you know, and I think it comes from a naivety that everyone's got a phone, you know, so therefore they can be online and it's like, mm, it's not, you know, that's not how it works. And like you say that we, we figured that, you know, we knew our students well enough to know that a lot of the students that were in and around the building all the time were there you know, largely because of the access to the resources, which includes Wi-Fi, which includes, like you say, um, uh, PCs and Macs in the edit suites or the library to to write the work and to make the work, and and some of them, yeah, just you know, it was difficult to talk to them because they didn't have the they didn't have Wi-Fi or they didn't have a room in the house that was quiet. You know, they're going back to small houses and they were sharing it with like, three or four siblings. You know, parents, both parents at home working. Um, you know, just the, the headspace and the time to sit down and have a call about their work was, was really difficult for a lot of them. Um, and that is a real issue going forward because, you know, offering online, I think you'll see a lot of students, the lot of students that don't go to, to university in, um, in September or don't return, I think a lot of them are going to be the ones with those issues who don't, can't do the work at safely at home with their um with their computers i really struggled with that in terms of this narrative of oh they'll be fine you know they're online all the time and it's like yeah but they're on their phone like on messenger but they're not working on their phone you know like it there's there's expect there's demands on it that are kind of taken for granted that well people are all online all time they'll be fine with it and there's not enough conversation about that and how that's going to impact students um and how it's going to make what's already an unequal experience even more unequal as we as we move forward that's a real worry um in terms of faculty experience um i know you you've you've won um excellence awards for your innovation of, of teaching and how you approach blended learning Thank you very much. That's yeah nice little plug for you yeah. <laughs> um and i know i know a lot of students really respect that element of your teaching that's why they enjoy you teaching them so much but obviously, even for you to transition solely onto online and using things like video conferencing, what were, what were the restrictions in that transition? Because um, I know, I imagine, did, well, did the university offer you any training, any additional resources? Mm. So there was, you know, the basic kind of tutorials were there, which were great, you know, how to record a lecture, how to, how to call someone, um, and uh but but how to actually make it interesting and creative no and there's a week next week that you know our kind of academic training week next week where a lot of that stuff will be addressed for the longer term and we'll see we'll see what that is i'm kind of waiting to see what what comes out of that before i start thinking about what i'm going to do the communication is that we you know we don't have licenses and we you know there's kind of gdpr issues and, and i get all that you know but it needs to be a conversation, I think, in terms of what can it look like. Um, I mean, we talked about it briefly prior to the call, but I imagine as well that the government would need to have to play a role in approaching social media platforms, content platforms, because of copyright issues as well in these sessions. Yeah, that's. I mean, you know, you, <laughs> the use of non-copyrighted material... Um, uh, also use of copyright material that you don't have quote unquote permission for is is a real problem um for kind of putting stuff online even more than it's you know like the fair usage 
um, understanding kind of is is trickier because obviously I could show something on a flash drive, you know, in a classroom for educational purposes in a, in, a, in, a, in an academic setting, and fair use is implied. Um, but it's if I'm recording a lecture and I'm putting a clip from, you know, Goodfellas in there, and I'm then putting that online, even though it's locked, but it's essentially you know, just on a certain, like, that's different. And that's, you know, we've kind of been told not to do that. Um, unless we've got permission to use all of the clips and images that we've got. But it's like, I teach film, like I haven't, you know, like you say, I mean, there's no, you know, I, I work under fair usage, but, um, and, and, and what they've been asking the last year or so is kind of put your material online, but take out all of that material. So I could do a lecture, but then I can't put the clip I've used up on the learning space because I don't have the rights to it. So I'm putting up the stuff. So if a student misses it or wants to go back to it, the, the clip and the image is not there anyway. And you'd hope that some of these conversations would have already been happening prior to the, the lockdown because there's already been a huge shift to blended learning, as you said. One of the impacts of COVID is a real, it's just a kind of, you know, a battening down of the hatches, you know, like a kind of a really fearful response and a kind of an insular isolating, you know, well, you know, no conversation. We're just going to get through. We're just going to, you know, like kind of any means necessary stuff, which for me just, yeah, kind of undoes a lot of good work, but also makes it, you know, sad because it's an opportunity to really change how we do things, to, to change, to you know, to really consider what our educational provision is. What is time in a classroom? You know, that's the reason I went to blended learning um, because I wanted my students to be thinking about the work throughout the week in little packets, you know, so they can sit, because I teach screenwriting, you know, so I want them to be thinking as screenwriters throughout the week. I don't, it, you can't, you can't become a good screenwriter if you're thinking about it for a 90 minute seminar and then you don't think about it for the rest of the week. So me constantly dropping in little tasks and little chats that made them feel like writers and then it changes what you do in the room. So blended learning is a great opportunity to think about what you do in the room and also how your students conceive of what they're doing outside of the classroom, you know, but none of that is part of the conversation now, which is, I just, I just think it's just infuriating because it's like, we could be really, really rethinking how we do this stuff. So what would be kind of the top five or whatever, however many hints or tips you would give for, for fellow educators? Um, uh, keep it simple, you know, is the first one. Don't overthink it, you know, like just whatever, you know, kind of start small, start simple, you know, for whatever, whatever it is. And then tied in with that is keep it short. There's, I think this is kind of going, It's uh, you know, it, at the start of this whole period, it was like, just replicate what you're doing. And it's like, I'm not going to deliver a two hour lecture online like this. That's just a waste of everyone's time and no one's going to, no one's going to watch it. No one's going to be there. So keep it short, you know, like bite size. Um, if you're kind of doing video uh, or audio again, shorter, the better few minutes here and there. Um, just, and you, you can get quite a lot across when you're talking on a video or an audio when it's pre-prepared and you know, that, and there's no audience and, and, 
you know, keep it short, keep it simple, keep it diverse, you know, think diverse as well. Like, you know, just think of as how many, how many different ways can I do something or how many different options think as well as this idea of the democratic technology that, you know, students, you have to kind of still think about students learning in different ways. So one of the things I've brought in is, you know, if it's written, can it also be video? Can it also be audio? You know, where can you, where can you offer different opportunities to do the same things that students feel comfortable in, in, in their own mode working on stuff? Um, keep it task driven, you know, like short tasks that have a goal, you know, with a structure students, you know, generally like working on stuff, you know, rather than being told stuff. So that's the one thing I really learned from the blended is like, if I set a task, the majority of students would do it. Um, and in the room, if I set a task in the room, they will do it. They would rather just get to work and then reflect, um, uh, and built-in reflection, you know, make sure that in your timing and your, you know, your plan of how you're going to use the technology, that there's a space to, to, to capture that reflection. And that can be an online forum or, a, you know, an online kind of, you know, Google Hangout, or it can be a, yeah, a kind of a live in the room roundtable, get them to kind of critique each other's work in a forum that you build. Um, there's a lot of thinking and a lot of planning up front. But once you're up and running with a lot of blended stuff and a lot of online stuff, it kind of manages itself. And you can really, the students can manage that amongst themselves a lot of the time. And a lot of the best learning comes from them seeing each other's work and talking to each other about it. And then you can facilitate that. So you're talking less on a video and they're talking to each other more so that you've done the task, you know, and you've set up a time, you've said, okay, this is an example. So shoot a one minute video um, of, you know, birds. You know, and everyone goes away and shoots a minute of birds. Everyone posts it up online, and then you say Tuesday at two thirty, we're all going to get together and talk about it. So everyone's seen the one minute films, and then they come on and say, "Oh yeah, no, like let's talk about Sam's film." And then you know, kind of people pitch in, and it helps them build their confidence about sharing their work and talking about their work. You know, you you've been dealing with the institutional element of this as well. You know, what what's been communicated to you from from senior management, and what's been the overall umbrella approach to all the different schools within the university, and so on. And I'm sure this has happened across the board, across the globe. Um, it's making these institutions take a much more thorough look at blended learning and online only learning, distance learning what would you encourage those institutions to consider as like the main uh, pieces of information in order to inform progress to, to developing a more consistent and coherent online blended structure? Uh, talk to their staff, you know, like just have a conversation with your staff about what students are like <laughs> and what they need and what they want based on the, the, the people who spend the most time with them. And what are, what do they think is possible and what are their ideas, you know, and kind of build it from the ground up. Teachers are never part of the conversation about teaching at an institution. You know, it's, it's always management decisions and it's always strategic decisions. And we've been told what to do and we're trying to make it work based on that. I lead a, a research and innovation program into pedagogy at the university. No one sent me an email asking me what that can offer. <laughs> you know, or if I know anyone in my program, members of staff who do innovative or interesting teaching that that, that could be used, you know, there's, there's never a conversation with teachers about what they do, you know, we're told this is what students want. And it's like, but I know my students, you know, um, and I know that's not what they want. But we're not we're not part of the conversation. And that's, 
that's that's I mean just like in any in any kind of neoliberal um institution uh culture you know that kind of top-down decision making it just doesn't end it doesn't end well it change you know it, it, it's not and we are in a moment when there's an opportunity to like i said rethink what we do and involve the people who do it in that conversation and get their ideas and you know um and not everything's going to be possible in terms of the finances or the licensing or whatever but but if a conversation's had then the people who do it can bring lots of different ideas to the table and at the, at the moment we're just excluded and i'm sure that's the same for a lot of secondary teachers and primary teachers who are just being told you need to do this um without being able to have any recourse to the reality of that and that's you know that's just you know the the same same shit different day but there's much more at stake now thank you to dr neil fox senior lecturer in film at Falmouth university please take the opportunity to listen to the brilliant cinematologist podcast via the link in the episode description. I hope the experience of this pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests will help push educational reform in the UK and around the world to help support our teachers and students in a more effective, flexible and relevant way that is more socially and culturally self-aware. I've been David Morris. Thank you for listening to the Anna podcast available on anchor.fm, Spotify and Apple podcasts. We'd love to hear your thoughts and comments, so please join our discussions online. The links to our social media pages are available in the episode description. This week's episode of Ah Now was produced by S2S Media.